Welcome to one of three special ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize-themed episodes of the ABR podcast. My name is Amy Bailey, and I'm the Deputy Editor of ABR. The Jolly Prize is worth a total of $12,500 and is open to authors writing in English around the world. This year, the Jolly Prize attracted 1,200 entries from 38 different countries. The judges, Gregory Day, Jennifer Mills and Maria Tackelander, long-listed eight stories from six of those countries. And you can find a complete listing on our website. The three shortlisted stories appear in our August issue, and they are Black Wax by Winter Bell, The Mannequin by Rowan Heath, and Our Own Fantastic by Uzma Aslam Khan. This week, we will be releasing three special episodes featuring the three shortlisted authors reading their stories, in alphabetical order, in the lead-up to the Jolly Prize ceremony on August 17. We hope you enjoy these special episodes. In the second of our three special Jolly Prize podcast episodes, Rowan Heath reads their story, The Mannequin. Rowan Heath is a writer, editor and LARPA living on Wurundjeri land. Their creative work has appeared in Influx, Trans and Gender Diverse Reflections and Imaginings, Monstrous Appetites, Perspective, Verge and Antithesis. Their fiction will be published in Strangely Enough, an ASSF anthology in late 2023. They have edited for publications such as Farago, Inkspot and Camp, and they currently work in the higher education sector. Here is Rowan Heath reading The Mannequin. The Mannequin. The servo had been upgraded since Paul last stopped in town. New apple green paint job, new exterior lights, but inside things were mostly the same. Paul recognised the stubby woman at the register and she rewarded his memory with a crooked smile. Welcome back, Paul. Once she'd taken his order, she said, If you get a chance, check the south corner of the car park, right up to the fence. It's become a dumping ground. No idea who started it, but it's catching. We finally hung up your wheel, too. Paul followed her finger past the tables and above the new windows, where next to the clock and a poster encouraging cleanliness and prohibiting violence, a large, aged wagon wheel hung neatly on the wall. If you find more like it, she continued, I want to put up another on the opposite side. I'll keep an eye out, Paul said and took his coffee and sandwich to a table where he could look up at the wheel between bites. When he left the servo, the eastern sky was a deep, dull purple. Over the years he'd become familiar with mornings like these, copses of trees swollen with dark, the lonely, unlit streets of country towns rolled open. They weren't as frightening as they used to be. Paul meandered towards the south corner of the car park, towards a junk heap as tall as his shoulders. Hands in his pockets, he looked at the heap, cataloguing the few things that caught his eye. Most of it was rubbish. Broken kitchen appliances, pockmarked couches, chairs with their legs amputated. There was a singer missing its handwheel and lever clamp, simple to fix but not worth his time. He fished out a strip of thin brown leather, a belt without a buckle, rolled it up and tucked it into his pocket. He sifted through a jewellery box and found a screwdriver that hadn't seen use, a glossy blue stone and a handful of nails. He put everything but the screwdriver back in the jewellery box and returned it to the heap. Paul had visited enough junk heaps to suspect that he found the most interesting things just before he left. He was right again. As he turned to leave, a large white shape flashed at the back of the heap as if to say, Here I am, don't leave me. Paul climbed through the heap, minding the glass that shimmered at his feet. Reaching for the bright object, his palm met a globe of smooth, dusty plastic. After a minor struggle... Paul had retrieved a featureless, five-foot-tall, snow-white human mannequin. A familiar kick drum started up in his chest. But why this? 
The last find he'd been this excited about was a functional onyx black singer from the 1890s, golden sphinxes painted on its sides. He'd given it to his missus. Before that, it was the Moonfighter 2000 buried in a pensioner's shed, the controls choked with dust but nonetheless working. He'd sold that to an arcade in Sydney and made thousands. And now this, a plain mannequin whose weight and size spoke cheap, mass-produced and disposable. It appeared in the antiques cabinet of his mind like a child's prank. Dust clung to his palms when he touched it. It cultivated mysterious, fuzzy blotches of black or brown or dark green. He ferried it into better light, sure he would find patches of yellow. Smoke, age, who knew what else? The eyes were two impressions like thumbprints, the nose suggested by a simple peak, as though the plastic had been pinched and drawn out. Those, at least, seemed artistic. Had he ever seen a mannequin with those features before? Had he ever bothered to look? Did it have nails, wrinkles, toes, and the limbs? Would they move? As he searched for a reason to keep it, circling back to its flat mask of a face, another truck pulled into the servo. Paul froze as the driver disembarked. Once they were inside the servo, Paul hurried the mannequin to his truck. Placing himself between the servo and the mannequin, Paul propped it against the driver's side door, but found that it stood just fine on its own. In the unforgiving wash of the LEDs, Paul found that fine, granular indentations, much like sandpaper, coursed across its body, swirling around the curves, hands and feet. It had to be handmade. He searched for a name or signature. Between the fingers, cupped like a ballerina's, behind the hills of suggested ears, along the scored ridges of its spine, he wound a torch around the joints, squinting into them, but couldn't see how the mannequin could possibly be taken apart. The arms could arc across the front of the torso from the ground up to the sky, but no further. The legs, though locked at the knees, had almost the same range of movement as Paul. The head could rotate a full 360 degrees. Convince me I have space for you. The mannequin didn't respond, but picked up another layer of light that both endeared and disgusted him. Before he could fully consider what it meant to care for something he wasn't sure he wanted, he had reached into his truck for a rag. He held the mannequin's shoulders steady and got to work scrubbing off the grime. He removed the most offensive patches, the hardest parts to clean being the joints themselves, and worked up a semblance of a craftsman's pleasure, forgetting the time and staying off the road longer than he'd planned. A young man had once said to Paul that the best boons granted to truckers in the last 50 years were portable microwaves, ACDC, and hands-free coals. Paul had other suggestions, but didn't voice them. He avoided microwaves, preferred cold chisel over ACDC, and found no reason why short coals couldn't be made when the engine was off and his legs moving around. The younger man said he spent hours on the phone with his girlfriend while she went about her life without him. While on call, she commuted home from work, went to the gym, showered and made dinner. She would describe to him the minute things she was doing and seeing. The rain splattering the train window, the particular way she shaved her legs, how much garlic she put in the risotto. Video calls were a godsend because they could just talk while seeing exactly what the other was doing. As Paul headed west, he thought about how he rarely wanted to speak to anyone that badly and for that long. He had a simple mobile phone in the glove box that he used only in emergencies. What would he say? Here is the crossing where I last picked up a hitchhiker. Here is my usual night stop when heading north on this highway. Here is where I saw the biggest kangaroo in my life and nonetheless hit it. He didn't feel the need to prove he had thoughts to a jury of peers. He was stationary and silent in his working life, and if he was blunt, his personal life too. 
But quiet felt right. Healthy. There was no way and no reason to translate the rich experience of his time alone into speech. This had been the problem with Tanya. She said he bought the quiet home with him, that he gave her nothing. Her therapist told her water eventually wears down stone. Tanya concluded that Paul must be a slab of metal. She was wrong. Paul was fluid. When his ex-wife crossed his mind, particularly over the last two years, she flowed through him like a boat on a stream. He didn't dwell. He understood her transience in his mind as a sign of cognitive health. Paul decelerated as a station wagon overtook him. It veered too far right, kicking up orange dust where the road sloped into dirt. When it had passed, Paul found Tanya sitting in the passenger seat. Her mouth was a firm line. He opened his palm to show her what it meant to dip into his thoughts and out again. I am fluid. He spoke aloud. See? Tanya wasn't listening because she wasn't there, but at a bump in the road, something shifted behind Paul. The mannequin rolled sideways to slot more snugly between the driver's seat and his bed. Its face was pressed against the back of his chair. Paul turned back to the road. On his next long break, he planned to see an old friend. He'd have to fudge his logbook, but this trip would take two weeks, so there was plenty of time to work with. He did the maths in his head as he drove. Paul met Rolf outside the local pub. Three years left their mark in wrinkles, grey hair, and a missing digit on Rolf's pinky finger. Rolf spoke of good harvests and bad ones, broken equipment, grandkids who lived far away. The pub had been renovated. He thought, everywhere I go, they've torn away the paint and knocked down half the walls. He could barely recognise the place. The past lingered only in the old bar itself, wood spit shiny with new gloss, a few hundred stubby holders nailed to the wall above it, and some of the bar tables that must have had a particular charm that saved them from the skip. Even the name had changed, though Rolf and Paul used the old one out of habit, stubbornness and affection. Paul eventually insinuated that he'd been left by his wife. Rolf nodded slowly. God help the rest of us. After a pause, he added, How are the kids holding up? Your oldest would be out of school now. Yeah. What's he doing? Still studying? The last Paul had heard, he dropped out of science for a photography course. Chemistry, he said, and physics. Good on him. Paul drank. He dropped out. Why'd he do that? Paul leant back in his chair, pushing his palms onto the bar. Wanted to try something different. Rolf made a sound with his tongue and his front upper teeth. Can't stop them. On the television in the far corner, a pack of greyhounds surged across a track, becoming a leggy grey smear. A young man a few stools down began to complain loudly about his food. Rolf said, And how's your daughter? Paul hadn't thought about his elders for some time. Nothing to think about. He wasn't prepared for what he said next. Gone. As Rolf tensed, Paul wished he'd thought about his elders more often. Maybe then he'd understand why he said that, and why it stunned him as much as it shocked Rolf. Shit, Paul. I'm sorry. Paul shook his head. The word had tumbled out of him strange and unexpected. A clump of bloody hair or a translucent egg. His flesh stuttered, a stone fruit twisting against its pip. Paul called for a glass of water. Rolf squared his bony shoulders and grew an inch taller on his stool. He said, I'm sorry, Paul. His shoulders said, you can talk to me. And his hands flat on his jeans said, I want to know what happened. But he only said, I'm sorry, Paul, and watched Paul drain the glass. 
Rolf kept drinking. Eventually, he turned to Paul and admitted that he'd seen shadows in the bush on the outskirts of his farm. The shadows crept closer to his home while he slept, retreating as the sun rose. He figured they'd always been there, though he hadn't noticed them before. Keep coming back. Figure they're cold out there, maybe. Rolf was grave, slurred, hushed. They come looking for warmth, but I've been sleeping with the fire out even in winter to stop them coming close. Does it work? said Paul. I think it used to. They come closer now, anyway. I shone a torch at them and it did nothing. It seemed to attract a few of them. I keep the lights out. Show them it's cold as a snowman's balls in the house so they can piss off. Paul was quiet. Rolf continued. You'll see them. Tonight. You'll see them looking out of the trees. All right. Paul drove Rolf home in his ute. He left Rolf on the outskirts of his farm, a five-minute walk from his bed. As Rolf struggled with the gate, Paul looked over the still fields and surrounding trees in the gibbous light and saw no unnatural shadows. The house was a blot, distant and out of focus. He imagined Rolf descending the stairs in the night and closing the distance to the far fence, the torch in his hand cutting crazed spirals in the grass. Paul couldn't tell if Rolf was afraid or just drunk, only that his eyes shone with wetness and his breathing was heavy. They found each other's palms in the dark. You come visit, welcome any time. Paul said he would. He closed the gate after Rolf and drove the ute back to the pub where he left the keys with the barkeeper. Then he walked back across town to his truck. He opened the door and startled. The fingers of the mannequin's white hand protruded from behind the driver's seat, reaching for the dash. He took out the mannequin and examined it in the weak light of the car park. He stared into its passive, blank face. He wouldn't be scared of things he could see straight on. He challenged it to frighten him again while his pulse settled. He noticed a strange black spot on its collarbone and rubbed it off with his thumb, then found another spot nearby. He peeked through his meagre wardrobe and took out the one shirt he never wore, collared, bright red, punctured with cartoon bananas, and wrestled it onto the mannequin's unyielding torso. Better? The mannequin didn't respond. The shirt was too big. Pulled it up all the buttons to stop it from slipping off. As he moved the mannequin to the passenger seat and settled into bed, Paul thought about Rolf and how he didn't see the connection between his haunts and his solitude. Rolf wasn't a liar, what he'd seen was impossible, but Rolf knew what he knew. Paul guessed it had something to do with his grandkids who lived far away, or his late missus. The shadows he saw, however tangible they were, were a sign of cognitive turmoil. Paul himself didn't want to be that isolated at Rolf's age. Paul got out of bed to turn the mannequin's face towards the window in case there was anything it wanted to see. The truck stop was a particularly simple one. Dust, gum trees, a forlorn picnic table. Paul scanned the trees, testing his superstition. He saw no unnatural shadows slipping towards him. The dark didn't make him afraid. Though in the dim light, the mannequin's glowing features and the angle at which it was propped up made it seem as though something had stunted into silence. Within half an hour of setting off the next morning, Paul realised he was wrestling with a cognitive loop. I'm sorry, Paul. I'm sorry, Paul. He checked his left side mirror and found Tanya sitting in the passenger seat, uninvited, looking stern and hurt. He turned on the radio and lumps like golf balls caromed in his chest. He saw the house he built with Tanya, their first holiday as a family, the kids' first steps. He couldn't grasp the music. He turned the radio off. I'm sorry, Paul. Rolf's words held him down and shouted horrible, incomprehensible things at him. 
gone. Why had he said that? The kid deserved more. I'm sorry, Paul. And what would he say the next time he saw Rolf? Would he remember the lie in another three years' time? Would anything change? Would have been nice to take the kids out here, Paul said to the mannequin, which was tucked behind his seat. His voice was louder than he intended, but steadying. But it was too far, not worth spending weeks in a car for. He could have made another excuse to bring them, might have convinced Tanya to visit a cousin out of state or sightsee up north. The kids could have seen the flat plains of scrub, the national parks in bloom, the old, endless night sky so estranged from the skies in the city, Uluru rising from the ground like knuckles for the sun to kiss. If they weren't spellbound by that, the West's best ice cream, three years in a row, was only a minor detour from where he was now. The kids could have trailed him through the local railway museum and then spent the afternoon eating ice cream in the park. Not gonna happen. What did he do when Tanya refused? What's wrong, she'd say, and he'd reply, Nothing. Why are you sighing like that for? I'm not allowed to breathe now? And on and on, until they were both too frustrated to talk further. Paul addressed the mannequin. If the kids come up here, they'll probably have kids of their own. Though the chances were slim. His youngest wasn't the fatherly type, and his eldest likely wouldn't have kids at all. He didn't know if they still could. Gone. He should have said, We don't talk. But it was more complicated than that. Without meaning to, he pictured his eldest when she was very young. She wore a yellow, smockish dress that she hated. Her brows wobbled upwards and her lips scrunched into a pucker, a look that used to mean, seriously? Paul had never met a young person with so much attitude. He'd say to her, where did you get that face? And she'd give nothing away, not what it meant or what she wanted. She tucked the expression away like some forbidden trinket she brought out only to remind him that she had it and that he couldn't take it if he tried. She seemed to settle into the passenger seat. None of that. Paul pulled the mannequin into the seat, and his kid was no longer there. Now you be quiet. The mannequin made no signs of talking. As Paul drove west, the sun lit up the rearview mirror like a bar of gold. Today would be warm. He felt heat already pulling on the top of his head. If he pushed his next long break out a half day, he could stop for ice cream. He looked to the mannequin, whose skull was a golden crown. You're a good influence, he said. Maybe it's the practice of talking out loud. He leaned over to straighten its collar. Quietest passenger I've ever had. The part of Paul that was used to the expressions and speech that came from humanoids sat in expectation of the mannequin's reply. For a moment, he didn't think about Rolf or Tanya or anyone else. Do you like ice cream? Paul could have said it aloud, but that was too much, even for him. Instead, he said, need to get you a name. In its stillness, the mannequin seemed to agree, as though it had already been thinking about how nice that would be. Choosing a name posed a problem. Paul searched for sources of inspiration the way he would if the mannequin was a car. Dusty, speedy, zippy. But the mannequin provided none. He fixated for hours, and it was only when he considered Manny that he recognised the problem. The ambiguous torso, the slight curves of the hips, the long, slender fingers cupped as if to hold water. He couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman, and it shivered off every name he chose. Problem child, he murmured. Generating names had been a good cognitive exercise, but as he pulled, yawning, into another dim truck stop, he worried for the state of his mind. He wasn't the type to obsess. As he cut the engine and checked over his truck, he tried to tuck the issue away for the evening, but kept circling back to it. 
He checked in on the mannequin between tasks, as though it might run away. Each time, he straightened its collar and found another foul speck on its body to scrub off. He left it in the passenger seat, glowing like a bright mould, the humanness of its shape blurring with distance and dark. The stop sprang from a semicircle of packed dirt where a portion of the surrounding bush had been spooned away. Towards the centre, a simple fire pit had been made semi-permanent through the addition of stones and shin-high logs. The first time Paul visited, the fire had played host to six long haulers, a family with four young kids heading north for a funeral, and two backpackers who had spent three days trudging down the wrong highway. The fire grew to accommodate them. Someone passed around packets of pretzels, the backpackers practiced English with everyone, and Paul fished out his newest find, an intricate, handmade checkers board carved from native cherry and white beach, and taught the older kids how to play. That was a different season. Tonight, the fire was only big enough to sweep furtive, hopeful arms along the edges of the pit, and two people hunched around it with long sticks by their feet, ready to whip the fire back if it tried to escape. Paul approached slowly and nodded to the figures before popping open his camper chair and taking an empty third of the fire for himself. Both figures wore beanies and thick jackets. From their positions on the log they shared, Paul got the sense that he had interrupted a fight of some kind or that they didn't know each other at all but had sat close together earlier and felt it would be rude to move away now. One figure nodded in Paul's direction and after a moment started to talk. His name was Dom and he was taking his child, Kyra, east into the city for medical. Long way, said Paul sympathetically. It's the only place that does what she needs. The first appointment has to be in person, so we're going in person. Then appointments are over the phone or on the computer. I guess they'll send scripts in the post. They'll email the scripts, said Kyra. Her voice was taut and light, a balloon filled with too much air. Then we'll email them back to Melbourne to have them filled and posted home. I can order them in. Guess I'm just a taxi then. The liquid quality to Kyra's voice reappeared when she laughed, dipping from low to high, from shallow to rich and back. Paul guessed she was a good singer. Where are you going, Paul? said Dom. Paul mentioned his employer and summarised his trip. Dom knew many of the places he'd passed through. He'd grown up everywhere, in over a dozen homes, never closer than four hours from the city. He knew the stops Paul would make over the next few days, knew his destination depot, funnily enough, and a very nice pub 30 minutes out from the depot that Paul would have to try. I was a truant, he explained. I spent a lot of time walking around. Kyra slouched on the log as Dom spoke. Paul offered her his chair, and with a little prompting she took it, rolled her knees towards her chin and dipped her head towards the fire. She looked no older than twenty. She and Dom shared a nose and the same dark, curly hair. Dom walked stiffly to the edge of the trees to do his business. Paul tried to check the time, but it was too dark to see the face of his watch. Kyra retrieved a phone from her jacket. It's half past ten. Thank you. Almost time to call it a night. Kyra nodded and put the phone away. It was dim, but just light enough for Paul to recognise the coloured stripes on her phone case. Blue, pink, white, pink, blue. He recognised the pattern too. He'd seen it around the house for years, oblivious to its meaning. His eldest had used it territorially on little things like pencil cases and label pins. If these things landed anywhere near Paul, they were snatched away before he could touch them. Paul wanted to say something, or he wanted to ask something, or he wanted... He didn't know what he wanted, just that there was a point between him and Kyra, somewhere atop the fire, that he was reaching for. 
and that he was thinking of his eldest, who he hadn't spoken to in years, who used a different name now, and who, last he'd heard, was starting to look a lot like Paul when he was a young man. My kid's going the other way, he blurted out. Kyra blinked twice. Four. Five seconds passed. Okay. She glanced back at Dom, who was heading over. Then she looked at Paul very attentively, her face blank, her eyes sharp. She was waiting to see what he would do next. Paul himself barely knew. We're out of touch. Kyra's shoulders and head seemed locked into place. Do you want to be? He wasn't sure. No. Then you should talk to your kid, not me. Paul finally recognised her expression. It meant, no more of this bullshit. Figure it out yourself. Right, he said. Right. Dom returned to the circle but didn't sit down. We might call it. Need to start early tomorrow. Bedtime, kiddo. Kyra stood up. Thanks for the chair. Paul nodded. They smothered the fire and said their goodnights. Paul climbed into the driver's seat. He watched the scrub shiver across the clearing. A truck roared down the highway, breaking the quiet of his cabin with a wild, mechanical scream. He fished through the glove box for his phone. The white light of the screen dazzled him. He held it away from his face. Growing up, his elders had had his eye colour, his eyebrows, his forehead. The same composition of features that made their juvenile pucker so distinct. Were those gone now? Had those features changed too much? If he called, what face would those features make? Paul squinted into the screen. The mannequin leant towards him in the passenger seat, poised to receive his thoughts. Paul smoothed the front of its shirt, flicked a speck of dirt off the side of its nose. It was owed an explanation. Up and left one day, he said quietly, so that only the two hollow creatures in the cabin could hear. Didn't say goodbye. Didn't say anything. Hadn't he given his family everything? Hadn't he tried? Still talks to everyone but me. He couldn't help people from leaving. They moved through him like water. He could only try to make sense of it later. Paul crawled onto the road at daybreak. The earth grew sparse and patchy. The road thinned. He cracked a window and the cabin inhaled warm air. This was a familiar route. He pointed out notable sights to the mannequin. Rock formations like fallen clouds, downed water silos, the white lightning of faraway rivers. But his desire to talk soon faded. The mannequin faced the window. It didn't care what he had to say this morning. Paul drove in his usual silence. Where he could, he focused on the trees, the passing cars, the horizon, the long, long road. His phone warmed on the dashboard, losing power by the kilometre. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Australian Book Review Podcast. This is one of three special episodes we'll be releasing this week, featuring the Jolly Prize shortlisted stories, read by the authors and presented in alphabetical order. You can find all three stories in our August issue. And join us on August 17 from 6pm for the Jolly Prize ceremony. Please visit our website for more information about this free online event and to register your interest in attending. We would like to thank the judges and all those who entered the Jolly Prize, and we congratulate all the long-listed and short-listed authors. We also warmly acknowledge the generous support of ABR patron Ian Dixon, AM, who makes the Jolly Prize possible in this form. The Jolly Prize will return next year. 
In the meantime, please visit our website for the details of the other long-listed stories and to read the three short-listed stories. Entries are also currently open for the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for digital access. Visit our website for more information or to purchase your copy of the August issue containing the three Jolly Prize shortlisted stories. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.